Blog Talk Radio. Hail Caesar, and thank you for joining us for a special Roman Empire installment of the A.J. Bruno Show. Today we'll be discussing some of the triumphs and tragedies of the Western and Eastern Roman Empire, from the rise of Rome to the fall of Constantinople and beyond, with Andrew Novo, an expert on ancient Mediterranean history and associate professor of strategic studies at the National Defense University. Hello, and uh, thanks for being with us. Hi, how are you? All right, how are you? Can you hear me all right? So, yes, yes, we can hear you. Great. So, uh, bef- great. Well, before we get deep into the topics of discussion for today, can you talk a bit about what drew you to pursuing Mediterranean history and strategic studies to such a high level of expertise? Sure. Um, well, so a combination, so the two different things. I mean, from the from the Mediterranean history and ancient Rome, I um, I grew up watching a lot of those uh, old classic movies of uh, sword and sandal epics, and I grew up in New York, so I also spent a lot of time at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and so seeing all of those great artifacts really made me interested in the period. And of course, when I was a when I was a kid, when I was about ten years old. I had the chance to visit Italy with my family, and that uh, that really cemented my interest in the in the period and in the history. For the strategic studies stuff, I, I guess it's a very traditional uh, experience that a lot of young boys have growing up playing with uh, toy soldiers and uh, playing strategy games. That sort of stayed uh, stayed with me, and so I've always had an interest in strategic studies as well. Great, well that's that's fantastic. So let's uh, start at the beginning of the Republic. Uh, what was so special about the early Romans that allowed them to wipe the Etruscans and basically everyone else from Italy and, and from nothing begin to build arguably the greatest civilization in history? Well, that's a great question. And uh, interestingly enough, I'm actually working on a project trying to answer that question because it's not one that has a simple, uh, a simple answer. Um, a famous historian of Rome said that you know the, the rise of Rome had doesn't have one cause, it has many causes, and it's not an event, but a, but a process. And I think that that's a good starting point. I mean, Rome has a couple of really great characteristics that makes it successful. The first is that it is relentless. It just, it just doesn't give up. Uh, so in an age where when states fight each other, they negotiate a peace treaty and they make compromises and they give things away, the Roman Republic is not going to do that. It it doesn't recognize when it's beaten. So it has this amazing relentlessness that allows it to keep going um, even when other states would would have stopped. I think a second enormous strength that it has is it's actually very practical. And I mean that in the in a, in a very real sense that it is very practical about its inclusivity and its citizenship. So a lot of other competitor states, whether it's Sparta or Carthage or Athens, I mean, states that are around and very powerful right at the beginning of the Roman Republic, um, these states don't do a good job assimilating other people. They don't extend their citizenship. Rome is actually the opposite of this. Rome has this great gift of, of Roman citizenship, but it's remarkably open to bringing in other states to become uh, Italian allies, to give them Roman citizenship. Very often it's not complete Roman citizenship. They do something called uh, citizenship without the right to vote. So you have sort of like the legal protections of being a citizen, but you can't vote in Roman elections. But of course they also extend the Roman right to vote as well. So they're very practical and and inclusive. Um, And I think these these two things, um, sort of relentlessness, and their ability to assimilate other people really help them 
uh, in their wars in uh, in taking over Italy. Sure, and that was definitely the standard with a lot of the other cultures that they adopted and and took on into the Republican Empire. But one example where they definitely did more along the lines of just destroying it outright was was Carthage. Now they fought three cataclysmic wars against Carthage. Uh, do you think Hannibal and the Carthaginians ever stood a real chance of a decisive victory in the second? And and why after that did Carthage really have little chance of overcoming Rome um, in the third war? So it's it's um, the the Roman Carthaginian rivalry really shapes the the third and second century in the central Mediterranean. Um, I think, of course, Carthage had a chance. I'm not I'm not a big believer in sort of predetermined outcomes. Carthage did have a chance to to win and to defeat Rome. Uh, one reason why they didn't was because a lot of Italian city-states stayed loyal to Rome. They thought it was a better option than Carthage. And the Carthaginians did not have the strength to actually take the city of Rome. Sieges in the ancient world were, were very common, but you didn't usually storm an ancient city. You had to take it either through treachery or through starvation. And so the Carthaginians didn't have the capability to do that to Rome. And that sort of Roman relentlessness I mentioned earlier, the Romans were not going to surrender to Carthage. They weren't going to make a peace treaty with Carthage that was disadvantageous to them. They were going to keep fighting, and Carthage lacked that final coercive ability to sort of take Rome by storm. I think just one other thing to add to the strength of Rome is its institutions were extremely strong. It had a functional Republican government that allowed it to weather a lot of the political infighting and and sort of coups and internal power dynamics and tensions, which plagued a lot of other states. Now, why did Rome destroy Carthage? I mean, after the Second Punic War, Rome is clearly the dominant power in the Mediterranean world. Carthage is dramatically reduced, um, and it's, it's 50 years from the end of the Second Punic War to the sort of Third Punic War. And the Third Punic War is basically just a siege of, of Carthage. Carthage has been dramatically reduced in, in strength and importance. Um, and I think it's a testament to the sort of, again, to Roman relentlessness and this, this impact that Carthage had on its psyche. The fact that Hannibal was in Rome and threatened the Republic with destruction. Um, there was a faction within Rome, led, of course, by the very famous Roman statesman Cato, who believed that Carthage had to be destroyed uh, at all costs. And so in the sort of middle of the second century, you see the Romans very aggressively pursuing um, the destruction of their enemies. Because the same year that Carthage is destroyed, the Romans also burn and destroy the city of Corinth, a very important Greek city-state, several hundred miles away. So they're doing the same thing in different places, really asserting their control of the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the most relentless Romans uh, was obviously <clears throat> Julius Caesar. So he was astoundingly successful in Gaul, but for the most part failed in his attempts to conquer Britain uh, while the invasion ordered by Claudius later on led to centuries of Roman rule. So what was different about the two that led to such radically alternate results? Well, I think the uh, Caesar's reason for going to uh, Gaul was to conquer it, to make himself famous and to win uh, glory and wealth for himself and, and sort of translate that to Rome as much as he, as much as he could. And, and he was a great self-promoter, writing, he wrote a history of the, the Gallic Wars, and he would send these messages back to Rome and send the history back to Rome in little bits and pieces, kind of the, the news bulletin of the time saying, look at all these wonderful things that I've done. 
as part of that campaign, he became the first Roman to cross the Rhine. He went into Germany. He raided in Germany a little bit. And of course, there was this fabulous, semi-mythical island of Britain hanging out uh, beyond the sea that was even more of a publicity triumph for him to, to visit. So Caesar raided Britain, I think, more for the propaganda value uh, as being the first Roman to, to do this, to sort of cross the, cross the narrow sea and become the great uh, explorer than he had any intent of uh, conquering it. Of course, uh, in later years, about, about 100 years later, uh, his relative, um, Claudius, Claudius goes to Britain very much with the purpose of conquering it. Um, and Claudius goes to conquer it to sort of demonstrate his capabilities as a Roman emperor, because Claudius is not the brightest bulb in the box. Claudius is not, has, does not have a military history in his, uh, in his life. He's, he, he doesn't command any armies. He doesn't have any sort of credentials as a military leader. And so he feels like he has to do something significant in order to be accepted as emperor. So he conquers Britain. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned uh, you mentioned Germany, and uh, during the reign of Augustus, uh, one of the most infamous failures in military history happened with the Battle of the Teutoburg Forest. So yeah. why were the Germanic tribes able to outwit the Romans and essentially able to end any chance of further expansion deeper into this part of Europe? So this is uh, this is a, a big question, of course, for Roman for Roman historians. Um, the the Battle of the Teutoburg Forest, you know, nine nine A.D. The massacre of it's a massacre of three Roman legions, who were basically led by a rather incompetent Roman governor named uh, Publius Quintilius Varus. And uh, Varus is actually, I mean, one of the reasons he's defeated, one of the reasons the Germans are successful, is because uh, they betray the Romans. So Varus actually marches his army with German scouts and German guides and German auxiliaries into the forest. And at some point, the German guides and German auxiliaries disappear, and they melt back into the forest, and they sort of abandon the Roman army, which is then lured into this very uh, well-thought-out trap. Now, Varus and his men are massacred. Um, They're massacred in a quite horrific way, many of them. Some of them are nailed to trees. Some of them are burned alive in wicker cages. Um, So this throws Rome into into panic, uh, but they get their act together, uh, and they're able to send a couple of punitive expeditions to sort of bury the remains of the survivors and uh, punish the Germanic tribes. And, of course, the German Arminius, who's responsible for this, is eventually killed in a, in a civil war with some other German tribes. The Romans don't decide to conquer the rest of Germany, I think, for a couple of reasons. The first is they have a nice, well-defined border with the Rhine River. Um, and the second is they're a little bit you know, they're, they're not designed for this kind of hit-and-run warfare uh, in the forests of Germany. But I think the third most compelling reason is that there simply isn't enough there to warrant the military effort. So essentially, the juice isn't worth the squeeze. This is a very, you know, whereas, for example, you mentioned Britain earlier. Britain is a fairly uh, good place to conquer. It has natural resources. It has tin. It has other things the Romans are interested in. It has uh, gold and silver. Germany has really nothing except forests, so the Romans are not really that interested in conquering it. Hmm. Interesting. So uh, Pax Romana 
ushered in one of the, the great periods of overall success for the Roman Empire, with the empire reaching its greatest extent under Hadrian. Now, would it have been possible to continue that expansion in the future, or was trying to keep what they had after this the right course of action? Well, I mean, Hadrian, Hadrian actually reduces the size of the Roman Empire. His predecessor, Trajan, uh, Trajan conquers, uh, conquers Dacia and parts of Mesopotamia. So he conquers into uh, Iraq and he conquers into Romania. And when Hadrian comes to power, he realizes that these territories, again, are it's possible to maintain Roman control, but it's very difficult. You have to keep the army on a very heavily mobilized footing, in the north, you've made yourself uh, vulnerable to lots of other tribes. And, of course, there are new tribes moving in all the time. In Mesopotamia, you're very foreign and unpopular, and the local people are used to being ruled by the Parthians or the Persians, and they don't like you very much. So there's an incentive to sort of keep what you have. At the same time, from a, if you want to go into sort of more modern speak, the, the, the geopolitics of it is that for Hadrian there is no pure competitor. Um, it's a unipolar world. The Persian Parthian Empire is weak. Uh, you've just destroyed Dacia. There is no single power beyond the Rhine or Danube that you have to worry about, so you can be very, very secure. And that's why this period, as you correctly referred to it, the, the Pax Romana, this is a very, uh, it's a very golden time for Rome. Of course, the famous English historian Edward Gibbon says that this is sort of, a, if you could point to any time in the history of man, this is one of the happiest and most uh, successful times in the history of man. Of course, he wrote that in the end of the 18th century. Uh, we may have had a couple periods to compete with it since then. Sure, sure. Now, is that the same issue in the East, it not being worth trying to expand further, or just there was so much resistance that they, they couldn't do it? Well, I think you know, different parts of the East, obviously at some point you reach desert, which um, so what the Romans called a, you know, a fortunate Arabia, Arabia Felix, desert, not really worth, uh, worth going um, further for. Um, obviously, Persia and Parthia were areas of enormous wealth, but there you start to run into places where it's the very, very limit of Roman power. It's, a quite, it's quite a distance away from sort of Rome and the empire's heartland, whereas it's right at the critical point for the Parthians and the Persians. So they'll be much more successful resisting you there. Sure. Now, the, uh, the empire had one of its all-time great leaders in Constantine the Great. So what mm -hmm. happened in the century or so after his death that led to the ultimately irreversible decline in the West while the East held strong? Yes, this is another one of those uh, big questions that people don't really have a good, uh, well, they don't have a consensus answer for. Yeah, so you're, you're right. I mean, Constantine the Great, um, of course, is a seminal figure. He's, uh, he unifies and uh, keeps the empire at a great size. Uh, and then, of course, not too long after his death, things start to unravel. Uh, in the late 4th uh, and then 5th century. The 5th century is a really, really challenging century for Rome. Uh, some of the biggest challenges in this period, I mean, you have, first of all, you have really difficult dynastic politics where the various families who run the empire are in constant competition with each other. And there are lots and lots of civil wars and lots of division within Rome itself. That's a very big factor in, in the decline and fall of Rome. The second issue which really plays into it is, um, at least for the 
for sort of 100 years from, or for 80 years from Constantine to 400, let's say, you have religious differences. So Constantine, of course, is, is perhaps most famous for being the guy who accepts uh, Christianity as a, as a religion of the empire and eventually becomes a Christian himself. Um, but there are an awful lot of pagans still in, in Rome. Uh, and so there is a huge division between pagans and Christians. And then, of course, within Christianity, you have additional uh, divisions between various kinds of, of Christians, the sort of Catholic, Orthodox, you know, traditional Christians, and you have a different sect called Aryan Christians. So there's a lot of division in there as well. And the third factor, which of course is, is the, the elephant in the room, are the barbarians, what we call the, or what some people used to call the barbarians. Um, and, and this is a huge factor for Rome as well, because at the end of the fourth century, you have a people called the Goths who appear on the Danube frontier in force, and eventually they make their way into Rome, the Roman Empire, through a combination of military force, but also agreed settlement. And once they're in the empire, they become extremely difficult for Rome to control, and they play a significant role in the end of the empire. Mm. Now, one of the issues I always hear about is uh, not having sufficient troops to be able to protect, protect the empire. But yes. they were hiring a lot of mercenaries towards the end. So I don't quite understand why they couldn't afford to raise significant amounts of, of actual Roman legions, but they could afford to hire you know, foreign troops. So, yeah, so this is, a, this is an important question in terms of the, the military structure of Rome. So the, you have a couple of things at play in terms of troops. First, as I, as I alluded to before, there's a lot of civil war. So sometimes there are plenty of guys in uniform, so to speak, but they're fighting each other. So if you have an army, the army is an effective size, but the army is consumed fighting itself and fighting competitors to the throne – uh, that's going to mean you have less troops to fight the enemy, if you can identify the enemy. And that's the second problem, is that in the 5th uh, century especially, starting in the 4th, but, but, but definitely by the 5th century, the enemy is harder to define. Um, a lot of the troops serving in the Roman army are Germanic tribes. Um, some of these uh, guys are, as you described, mercenaries. There are different layers of mercenaries. Sometimes the Romans sort of just contract with the chief of the tribe. Uh, other times the, the chief of the tribe is willing to serve Rome if he personally is rewarded enough, if he's given a Roman title. He may want to be made consul. He may want to be made supreme allied commander west um, or supreme allied commander east. Um, but the, there, are, uh, there are issues with doing that and political ramifications to doing that, what the Romans used to call magister militum, the master of, of uh, soldiers. So there are not necessarily, there's not necessarily a troop shortage. It's just a question of whose side are they on and can they be co-opted and are they sometimes fighting each other. The last point I would say about um, having sufficient troops is, uh, is a taxation issue. Um, the very wealthy Roman landowners of the late imperial period uh, hoard their money. And the emperor has an almost impossible task in getting them to pay any money to the state so that they can uh, create uh, an army. Mm -hmm. Sure. And it seemed like there were a lot of um, really poor emperors at this period. 
Um, two particular generals stand out to me as, you know, they're called some of the last of the Romans. Um, so how could these corrupt emperors, you know, masquerading as Christians, uh, murder great generals like Stilicho and Flavius Aetius, who were respectively in their different time periods in the late 300s, mid 400s, really the only men holding the empire together? Sure, as you said, uh, both Stilicho and, and Aetius, they, they, both lay, they both have that uh, name attributed to them as last of the Romans. And these guys are professional soldiers. They are, they are professional soldiers. Um, in, in Stilicho's case, we also know that he is the son of a soldier. Um, and Aetius is also the son of a, he's actually the son of a general. Um, and they try their best to hold Rome together. Uh, as you said, the emperors at this, for, for both of these two uh, generals in particular, they're not the, they're not the finest emperors, uh, and they're mostly caught up in dynastic and court politics, while guys like Silico and Aetius are actually in the field trying to, to hold things together. Um, it's a very complicated period. There's a lot of changing sides. There's a lot of jockeying for position. Um, as you said, both Stilicho and Aetius end up being murdered or executed. Um, Aetius is murdered. Stilicho is executed. Uh, they have good working relationships with some emperors, and other emperors turn against them because they fear that they will seize control or that they will have their sons start a new dynasty and overthrow the, overthrow the existing imperial dynasty. Unfortunately for, for the Roman state in the 5th century, it is a very paranoid state. It is a state with enormous court politics. There's lots of conspiracies. There's lots of misinformation and disinformation where generals and leaders are saying, oh, well, you know, did you know that so-and-so is planning to overthrow you? Oh, I didn't know so-and-so was planning to overthrow me. Well, I'd better go kill him uh, before he does overthrow me. And then, of course, if you're the general in the field that uh, you've just been told you're trying to kill the emperor and the emperor is going to execute you, then you now might actually try to overthrow the emperor because here's, he's coming to kill you. So it's a, it's a very complicated period. And on top of all of that, um, as I said, you have the um, Germanic tribes coming in and these leaders are trying to sort of balance the the Germanic tribes one against the other and try to hold on to power. Mm. By the time Aetius dies, um, there's very little left of the Roman Empire at all. Now, uh, one of the last attempts, I guess, to revitalize the West was when Majorian attempted to take the uh, important regions in North Africa where a lot of their uh, grain came from. Now, why were they not able to, to do that? And if they had, do you think there's a real chance that there could have been renewed life in the West? Well, yes. I mean, we, we don't tend to think of North Africa today as a particularly, you know, fertile place. But for, for the, in, in the ancient world, before a lot of um, degradation to those uh, geologies, it was very important uh, for grain for Rome. Um, Majorian's campaign was aimed to overthrow the Vandal Kingdom of North Africa, um, which was one of the most strongly anti-Roman of the, of the barbarian regimes, the Germanic tribe regimes. And his campaign is largely a failure because of, um, because of weather. The, the, great, the, the ships and men that he assembles are destroyed in a storm, and Rome simply doesn't have the resources at that time to, uh, to rebuild them. 
Um, it was a huge combined effort of the West and the East. It was the West's final effort, if you will, and uh, the East did not have the resources to try again on its own, and very shortly after, uh, in any case, the, the Western Empire collapses. If they, I mean, if they had been able, if they had succeeded, it could have extended the life of the West briefly, but I, d I don't think it would have changed much um, overall because I think the rot had gotten too deep by that point. Mm -hmm. So uh, shifting east somewhat, uh, after the fall of the Western Empire, uh, Justinian in the, in the Eastern Empire succeeded in retaking some of the land lost, but ultimately this couldn't be capitalized upon and you know, was, was lost eventually. Uh, with the strength of the East, why couldn't more permanent retaking of lost Western territory be accomplished? Well, Justinian's reconquests are a very divisive issue for historians. Some people think he was a great uh, Roman. Also, Justinian also, by the way, lays claim to the title last of the Romans. And they, they thought that uh, his campaigns were keeping Rome going and restoring glory. As you said, he, he reconquers most of Italy. He reconquers Rome itself. And he reconquers North Africa, and actually Justinian's armies destroy the Vandal Kingdom of North Africa, completely uh, obliterate it, as well as obliterating Visigothic Italy. Uh, he doesn't have the resources to hold it, largely because he is faced with uh, the growth of uh, Persian, he's faced with a very significant Persian rival in the east, but he's actually brought low, literally, by um, the plague. There is a massive outbreak of plague, bubonic plague. Uh, it kills large numbers of people in the Eastern Roman Empire, in the Roman Empire. Uh, it makes Justinian sick. Uh, he, he, he falls ill. He recovers, but is never quite the same again. And so the resources, the resources of the sort of minimized Eastern Empire are not sufficient to sustain conquest in North Africa and Italy especially in Italy against the continuing influx of new Germanic tribes and also the shaping of a new distinct Western identity, which is a sort of fusion of this Roman and Germanic uh, cultures, which is becoming very, very different from the more uh, Greek Roman identity in the East that, uh, that Justinian and the Byzantines represent. Sure. Well, moving ahead uh, a little bit more, one of the great threats that the East obviously faced was uh, the Arab conquest, which had grown so great that Constantinople itself was threatened with destruction. Um, so Western Christians obviously aided the East in repelling this threat and were a, a big part of its success, I think. Uh, why do you think the sense of urgency that saved Christendom from Muslim Arabs was not shared when Constantinople was ultimately taken by the Turks in, in 1453? Right. Okay. So that's that's a lot. Let me let, let me try to let me try to sure, break this sure. down a little bit. So so yes, I mean the the Arab conquests really really rock the Roman world and the Mediterranean world and what you might call the ancient world. Um, there was a very famous argument made in the early 20th century by a French scholar that that really the if you want to look for the fall of Rome and the end of the classical world, it is the Arab conquest because it, it sort of shatters the last of that, um, those, old, those old traditions. And as you said, the Arab conquests are extremely rapid. They are uh, successful. They destroy Persia. The, the Roman rival for a thousand years is destroyed by the Arab conquest. I mean, this is also the Persian Empire that 
invaded uh, Greece, you know, in the Battle of Thermopylae, that empire is wiped away by the Arab conquests, and they almost, they come within a hair's breadth of, of wiping away uh, Constantinople as well. They don't. They, they can't take the city of Constantinople because of its extraordinary uh, architecture and, and defenses. Um, but they do conquer Spain. They're eventually turned back in France by uh, Charles, Charles Martel. Martel. Yeah. yeah, Charles Martel and the, the, the Franks, who will eventually uh, you know, culminate with uh, Charlemagne and the sort of reestablishment of a new Holy Roman Empire in the West. But I think what's important to remember is that subsequent to the Arab conquests, you have two enormous divisions within the Christian world. So Byzantium itself is divided by what's called the Monophysite controversy, which is, is a religious controversy we don't have to dwell on. But the, the essential point is that a lot of the people living in the Levant, I mean, Egypt, Syria, what's today Egypt, Syria, Jordan, Israel, practice this heretical belief. And so they are not particularly fond of their Byzantine lords and masters. And so when the Arab armies come in, they welcome them as uh, an opportunity to avoid this persecution by, uh, by Constantinople. The second and bigger divide and more significant divide is the divide between Western uh, Latin let's say, Catholic Christianity and Eastern Orthodox, Greek Orthodox Christianity. And so this divide takes place in the, it really hardens, and the official date for the schism is 1054, the middle of the 11th century, but the two churches have been on divergent paths for quite some time before that. So when, I think you were sort of alluding to the Crusades as sort of the, the West coming to rescue um, Constantinople, they they did, but um, it wasn't quite so friendly. I mean, when the Crusader armies, the armies of the First Crusade, reached Constantinople, the emperor actually locks the gates of the city against them and then ferries them across uh, to Asia Minor as quickly as possible. And then as soon as they help him take uh, a couple of cities on the coast of Asia Minor, he very quickly loses interest in helping the crusade at all. And, of course, the Crusaders, for their part, the First Crusade, the guys of the First Crusade, many of them had cut their teeth fighting against the Byzantines. So there is a very much, uh, there are very severe divisions within the Western world. Fast forwarding to your, the last part of your question about the eventual fall of Constantinople, uh, there is a concern in the West about the fall of Constantinople. Part of this is religious. Uh, you know, sort of genuine concern with the expansion of Islam. Part of it is um, economic because there's fear for trade routes and um, the ability for especially the Italian city-states to make money and continue to trade with the Orient. Um, and part of it is geostrategic, to get, to get back to a modern term, that they just don't want to border this very powerful expansionist Ottoman Empire. There are lots of Christian crusades in the late 1300s and early 1400s um, that are designed to try and protect the Balkans and Constantinople. They are almost always defeated by the Ottoman armies. Um, this, this culminates in a series of important defeats uh, in the middle of the 15th century. Um, and so the, the Christians really don't have much uh, strength left 
to try and unify against the armies of the Ottoman Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Pope tries to make a, a little attempt to save Constantinople. There are some people who go to, to fight in its defense. The Venetians belatedly send a relief force that arrives a little too little, too late, too bad. And uh, that's how it ends. Sure. Well, I know Constantine XI also appealed to the West, too. But besides for some help from the Italians, um, you know, I've seen the figures on how many men the Ottomans had and how many men were defending Constantinople. And it was pretty much a lost cause, although they did make an attempt to stop it. But uh, there was that infamous incident of dragging the ships across uh, that strip of land. So I don't know if they didn't think of that. Maybe they could have held the city for longer. But So, yeah, so, I mean, there, there are a couple of things. Um, the, the first is, as I said, I mean, there was, there was a crusader effort to try, and, uh, to try and halt Ottoman advances pretty significantly. Um, there was a, a massive battle at a place called Nicopolis in, in 1396 in, 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 in what's today Bulgaria. Um, there were big battles at, at Kosovo. Uh, there was another crusade, what's called, sometimes called the Crusade of uh, Varna, again in Bulgaria. And this is a huge army of Bohemians and Croatians and Hungarians and Polans, uh, Poles and guys from the Papal States. And they're defeated in 1444 by the Ottoman Empire. And so by the time Mehmet II besieges Constantinople in 1453, these states like Poland and Hungary and Bohemia, they're exhausted. Um, the Venetians have a slightly more cynical attitude, which is that they are not, in 1453, really prepared for war with the Ottoman Empire. And so Venetian help is half-hearted at best for the siege of Constantinople. Um, Mm. Ironically, I mean, you, you mentioned talking about the numbers, there are more Italians fighting to defend the city of Constantinople than Greeks in 1453. There are guys from Genoa, there are guys from uh, Venice, there are guys from the different Venetian and Genovese-controlled islands in, um, in the Eastern Mediterranean and in the Aegean. So there was definitely a, a manpower problem. Um, and, you know, the, in, in spite of that, the siege came, it was a very, very close, it was a very, very close, uh, close-run thing. Um, there was a combination of new technology and bad luck. And the new technology was firearms. I mean, large, I'm not talking about regular firearms because, you know, they've been around since the 14th century, but large, very effective artillery that could be used for sieges uh, against walls that were built at the start of the 5th century. So you have a very, you know, ancient walls against modern uh, guns. That's not going to end well. And then a little bit of bad luck. I mean, the siege itself, the Italian... Uh, commander who is in charge of the land defenses is wounded at the height of the battle and is taken away from combat. And of course, in, in medieval warfare, if you see your general wounded and, and leaving the field of battle, it, it really, really uh, reduces morale. And so a lot of people started to waver at that point. And then supposedly, one of the accounts tells us that by accident, a little side gate had been left open. The Turks are able to enter this side gate. They cut down the imperial banners. They raise their own banners. For a moment, people think the city's fallen. Again, people start to get nervous. They close that gap, but sort of the damage has been done, and eventually the walls, uh, the defenses on the walls crumble. Now, certainly one of the 
great cataclysmic events of history. So in the in the bit of time we have left, I want to touch on, on some modern things. Um, so you've taught in Cyprus and have a, a strong personal understanding of the, the larger Greek world. Um, so in contemporary times, has retaking such important places as Constantinople been lost as a realistic goal? And um, and what do you think about uh, the future of that situation? Well, for the for for many Greek people, um, Constantinople remains a city of enormous cultural and religious and therefore historic significance. Um, of course, it is an extremely important city in modern Turkey. It was the capital of the Ottoman Empire for almost 500 years or 450 years. So it's it's not um, it's not so much a question of of retaking it um, anymore, so much as the significant cultural and religious attachment that that many people have to it. I think one of the one of the significant challenges that that people face is the fact that some of those wounds are a bit more recent. Until the 1960s, there was still a fairly sizable. A Greek-speaking Christian minority in Constantinople, uh, because of uh, various uh, political issues, including crises over Cyprus in the 1960s, these uh, people were basically expelled by the Turkish government. Of course, uh, there are concerns today about the future of the the patriarchate and the ability of the Greek Orthodox Church to sort of maintain itself in in Turkey as a whole, and in Constantinople in particular, people play politics with closing churches, closing seminaries, prohibiting people from performing certain religious rituals in certain places. Uh, the great cathedral of Hagia Sophia, of course, is now a, a museum. Ataturk, to his credit, made it a museum and said, look, this is a holy church, it's a holy mosque, best to be neutral, best to leave it as a museum. Every once in a while, Someone who wants to get in the news in Turkey can say, "Well, we should turn it back into a mosque." And of course, this this starts starts the war going a war of words going back and forth between between different sides. I think, in terms of contemporary politics, it shows us how a lot of history is still relevant, and a lot of the wounds are still fresh, and they can very much impact current debates. Mm-hmm. But how do we reconcile all of that with the fact that? Turkey in general, compared to basically any other country in the world, uh, will deny some of the mass genocide they've committed against, you know, Greeks, Armenians, Assyrians, and others. And um, and especially in modern times, that's kind of the equivalent of if Germany denied the Holocaust. And it's just, it's really beyond me. Turkey does um, definitely suffers from the sort of the the crimes of the, especially of the 20th century. I mean, I think the the Turkish narrative is <clears throat> it has I guess it has a couple of layers. I mean the the first is it is difficult to hold present generations accountable for the sins of their parents or grandparents or now you know you're going on great or great grandparents or great great grandparents. So that in of itself raises its own moral and legal issues about who are you really trying to hold accountable and why. Um, there is. Uh, a narrative in Turkey that, you know, sort of these things happen, this sort of general banality of mistakes were made, that this was, there were times of war, time of crisis. 
obviously the what happened with the Armenian population was, I mean, we're coming up on the commemoration of the Armenian genocide on April the 24th. So it's something that Turkey is going to have to grapple with, um, especially since it does color its relations with Armenia until today. And European countries and even the United States, when leaders have raised the issue, um, they are very quickly criticized by Turkey, and, and sometimes their, you know, their financial interests and trade relations are also threatened because they, they want to characterize the, the killing of Armenians as genocide. It's a, very difficult, it's a very difficult question of moral culpability, and of course, present generations have a resistance to taking guilt for the crimes that were committed 100 years ago. Sure. Now, uh, with uh, another final question here, uh, you appeared in the series Ancient Assassins. Can you tell us what it was like lending your expertise to that program, and if there are any other upcoming ones uh, we should keep an eye out for? So yeah, that was it. Was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun to do Ancient Assassins. We did it here in a in a studio in in D.C. and and talked about a couple of sort of very exciting special units in in different uh, ancient armies and and their their tactics and battlefield performance. So I re- I really enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun to do a program like that. I mean, I think it's a, it's a great program because it, it targets both people who are sort of generally interested in the subject, but also people who might have a more specific interest in things like equipment and tactics and, and some of the more uh, historical intricacies. I don't know if they're doing the series this year. I, did it, I, I filmed it about a year ago, and then they aired it in the summer. I don't know if they're doing a similar series this year, or maybe they're gonna maybe they're gonna wait and do another uh, in uh, years to come. But yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was a great experience. Sure. Well, uh, it was it was great covering a couple thousand years of history in uh, this amount of time. And uh, thanks so much for for lending your expertise. No, it was my pleasure. Thank you very much. I, I hope it right. uh, I hope we covered the ground you wanted to. Definitely. All right. Thanks and take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Okay, that uh, was Andrew Novo. Uh, We had a lot of ground to cover in um, a limited amount of time, so I hope you enjoyed that. We tried to get to some of the the big issues in in Roman history and relate that today to some extent. Uh, Anyway, we'll be back next Monday at 2 p.m., shifting gears once again. This time we have a really special guest. Uh, The legendary James Darren will be my guest. singer and actor. You've seen him uh, in lots of, lots of things, really, if you paid attention. Uh, so be sure to catch that show. It's going to be great. And uh, we'll be back for that. So until next time, uh, this is AJ Bruno signing off. Thanks for joining us.